The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. So I invite you to turn there now to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Continue to make our way through this book and we're getting closer and closer to the end. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, getting in verse 1 and looking through verse 12. Let's now give our attention as God speaks to us in His Word. Ecclesiastes 9, verses 1 through 12. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy. And drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white, let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net. And like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. This concludes the reading of God's word. May he now be pleased to add his blessing to it. Have you ever felt really anxious about an impending event? Maybe for you kids, uh, you had a test coming up for school. Or you had a performance where you had to stand before a bunch of people that all their eyes were on you. Uh, Maybe for uh, others in here, there is a surgery that was coming up. And I've been told that there's no such thing as a minor surgery because there's a level of angst uh, going uh, under the, 
going under um, as far as getting the anesthesia and and you're not in control, you're not awake during it. Uh, perhaps you've had a job interview that you're extremely nervous about. Or uh, you had to give an account to a, a, an authority, a, a superior. Uh, you were called into their office, and that made you extremely nervous. You know, One of the things I've had to adjust to as a pastor is that when I say, hey, come to my office, uh, someone is immediately really scared. Say no, I just want to show you my Euro mount. It's really not that big of a deal. And you say, yeah, right. You don't have a Euro mount. You have to be a good hunter to get one of those. However, this this really is the way it is all of our life, and that's because death is coming. And the reason we get anxious over these events is really the same reason uh, we uh, get uh, same. It's the same way it is with death, except it's greatly magnify. Uh, We must stand in the presence of God. We must stand in His presence for judgment, the heavenly tribunal, worse than going to the principal's office. And in the judgment, there's a measure of our performance, which is what we're scared of when we stand in front of others. No, people are going to look at me and see that I have not measured up and get rejected. Well, how much more is it when it comes to the presence of God. This is the way we feel before men. How much so, How much more so an eternal God? And the only comfort that the world has to offer is, well, you just don't have to worry about it right now. It's kind of a sorry comfort. And a lot of times, that's the way we are. Right? I just don't got to worry about it right now until we have a near-death experience and realize, oh, this is really coming. And what do I do about it? Now Solomon here reminds us again that we do live in death's shadow. And we don't know the day that it's coming for us. And again, Solomon leaves us hanging and leads us longing for the answer, which of course is found in Christ. So three realities of living in death's shadow. First is the certainty of death. The second is the uncertainty of death. And then the third is the enjoyment of life. I'm going to do this out of order according to the passage. Uh, First, this certainty of death. In verse 1, Solomon says, But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. So this flows out of the previous passage from chapter 8, where Solomon says that he's trying to figure out the work of God. He's trying to figure out what God's up to in this incursed world. He's trying to make sense out of it all, and he says nobody can. And then he realizes, but the the deeds of the righteous are in the hand of God. As God sees them all, they're under his sovereign hand. However, what he says at the end of verse 1 is, whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. And this is talking about God's love or God's hate. Uh, what Solomon is saying here is he doesn't know whether or not God loves or hates the deeds of the righteous. Why would he say that? Well, verse 2, it is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. 
and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. So the same event that happens to all is death. Whether you're good relative to uh, those who are outwardly uh, living a sinful life, uh, menace to society, or not, doesn't matter. The same event happens. Everyone dies. And to press this upon us, he gives a list of contrasting characteristics. The righteous, good, clean, and the one who sacrifices is brings God an offering and who swears this be used in a good sense of committing oneself before God honorably, backing it up with an oath to show his commitment. And this is contrasted with the wicked, evil, unclean, he who does not bring an offering to God, the sinner and one who refuses to swear because he does not want to uh, make a commitment to God. Uh, the same event happens to all. And this is why you don't know whether God loves or God hates the deeds of the righteous because this, this event of death, which is a judgment, happens to all. All die. And this is not viewed as a good thing. Verse 3, he says, This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Again, evil here, it does not refer to uh, uh, a moral failure, but just this is not the way it should be. This terrible adversary of death called an enemy by the Apostle Paul overtakes everyone, whether good or bad. And why is that? Well, continue on, continuing on in verse 3. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. So the hearts of the children of man, literally the hearts of the children of Adam, can mean both, are full of evil and madness. Significant evil. Even though Solomon does not explicitly make the tie here, we know why all die based on this. It's because there's evil in the hearts of all the children of Adam. And so is there any hope? Well, verse 4, but he who is joined with all the living has hope. Oh, good. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. So he who is joined with all the living refers to he's still alive. He's still with those living on earth. And he still has hope. And Solomon uses uh, this illustration of a living dog being better than a dead lion to, to bring this out. And we, we have to understand the way they thought about animals back then. Okay, so, so today, uh, dogs are worshipped practically. Uh, they're, they're seen as good pets. and uh, <clears throat> But back then, dogs were despised. They were viewed as rats, basically. Uh, they're just dirty, wild pests that ravaged scraps uh, and trashed in the street. Uh, back then, that's how they viewed them. A lion, however, was viewed as really the highest of all animals. There was, there was dignity. There was strength. There was, there was honor. A lion was used as a symbol for kings and, and kingdoms and power. But in this case, a dog, the lowest of animals, is better than a lion, the highest of animals, because the dog is still living and the lion is dead. And why is this better? Why is this hopeful? Verses 5 through 6. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have all perished, have already perished, 
and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. So here is the hope that the living have. They still have knowledge, whereas the dead know nothing. Now again, this is speaking from the perspective of life under the sun. Solomon is not denying the afterlife. He's showing us perspective, perspective of life in this world apart from what comes afterwards. And so speaking from this perspective, he says the dead know nothing. That is, they know nothing of this incursed world, this vain world. They no longer have this experiential knowledge of this world. And they don't know what's coming next. They no more have a share in all that's done under the sun that is in this life. They're now dead. They're forgotten. But notice why they are... Um, let me back up for a second. Their, their love and hate and envy have perished with them. Uh, they no longer have these desires for the things of this world that drive them. And so the living still have an advantage, Solomon says, because they still know. They still have some form of knowledge, some form of experience. Uh, but notice what they know. It says here, they know that they will die. So that's the hope. That's the advantage. The dead know nothing of this vain world anymore, but the living know this. They're going to die. That sound like good hope to you? Well, not exactly. But you see what Solomon's doing here. He's showing how vain this life is. At first, he makes it sound like the living have an advantage. We say, oh, finally, some good news, <laughs> some hope in the midst of all this darkness. But then he bursts our bubble and says, and here's the good news. You know you're going to die. You're living in death's shadow. And of course, that's not good news at all. We have certainty of our impending death, that we are going to die someday. But there's actually something we don't know as it pertains to this, and that is when that will happen. This brings us to the second reality of living in death's shadow, and that is the uncertainty of death. So first, the certainty of death, now the uncertainty of death, verses 11 through 12. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those who are no favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. So these sayings of the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, etc. means that you're not automatically guaranteed to win the race just because you're stronger, just because you're faster. This is because, as Solomon says, time and chance happen to all. Chance is from the perspective, from our perspective. That is, it came unexpectedly or seemingly out of nowhere. Is somebody alarm going off to wake them up for my sermon? Whoever it is, the person's like, oh, don't draw attention to me. What Solomon is referring to here is death. That's what we didn't see coming. 
It's like a net that catches a bird or a fish when they didn't expect it. And this reveals that we just don't know the day of our death. Because like the fish or the bird, they would not have gone into this net if they knew it was going to snatch them. It's, they would have fled. They didn't know that that was their time. It's kind of like if somebody told us, hey, when you go to Billings tomorrow, you're going to die in a car accident. How many of us would say, oh, great, I'm going to Billings? you say, no, I'm not going to Billings. You see, we don't know when this is going to happen. We can be strong. We can have good health. We can do all the right things as it pertains to our health. And yet time and chance can happen. The sense that we can be snatched. And there's a million ways in which we can die. The young people that get cancer and die. Young people are subject to uh, various types of accidents that can take them out of this world. And so think about this for a moment, about this life. We are living in death's shadow. Death is coming for you, but you just don't know when. It's like saying a murderer is stalking you, and you don't know when he's going to strike to take your life. This is the life we live in, in this vain, sin-cursed world. We just often suppress it and don't want to think about it. But Solomon is making us think about it. And so what does Solomon, the wisest man alive, have to offer us as a solution? And this brings us to the third reality of living in death's shadow, and that's the enjoyment of life. For the sixth time, Solomon tells us to find enjoyment in this life. Except this time, rather than saying he commends it, this time he commands it. Thus, this passage is filled with many forceful commands or imperatives. The most forceful section in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's as if there's an urgency given here in light of impending death. He tells us to enjoy four things that begin with W. Uh, wine, white, wife, and work. Just to summarize it. First, wine. Verse 7. Go, eat your, your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. So Solomon doesn't merely say, eat your bread for nourishment, but rather eat your bread with joy. Enjoy your meal. Do it with pleasure, too. You know, it's quite amazing that God did not just give us food for nourishment, where we just all eat the same exact bland thing, even though that would make potluck easier. But he didn't just give us the same bland thing that we eat day after day just for nourishment, but he gave us a variety of foods and taste buds with which to enjoy them. So God has given us joy. Enjoy these things. He's a good God who takes delight in his creatures having delight. And then there's wine, which was not watered down grape juice, as some legalistic fundamentalists want to say to justify their, their legalistic stance. Uh, while no one needs to partake in it against their conscience, yet the Bible does not condemn it. In fact, Solomon says to enjoy this good gift of God with a merry heart. Again, drunkenness is condemned in Scripture, just like any abuse of any good thing. God's good gifts, like money and food and work. 
but we can enjoy these good gifts with a good conscience because as Solomon says here, God has already approved what you do. Now we have to keep this in the context. It's not that God approves of everything and anything you do. But rather the context guides the meaning here that God approves of you enjoying His good gifts, food and wine. And the reason why people make man-made legalistic laws and rules saying that something that is good that God has given us to enjoy is evil is really because of an evil conscience, a guilty conscience. God has not approved of this, and so I need to stay away from it. So Spurgeon said that the heart of the legalist is you can't have enjoyment and because there's something bad about enjoying God's good gifts. I'm more righteous if I don't uh, indulge as much. Now again, abuse, drunkenness is sin. Enjoying God's good gifts, uh, things that God has called good, is not sin. But the legalist, the Pharisee, uh, does not want to do it because it is, um, he believes he's going to be guilty before God. God hasn't approved, and he's more righteous by not doing so. It flows out of the view of God that he is restrictive, a hard master who said, you shall not eat rather than you are free to eat. And Solomon also tells us to dress nice. Verse 8, let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. He's saying, live life to its fullest. Enjoy clean garments and oil on your, oil on your head rather than wearing sackcloth and ashes and pouring dirt on your head out of mourning. And then Solomon says in verse 9, enjoy life with the wife with whom you love. All the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. Because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. So you can kind of understand the context here where these things are not bad. I mean, enjoying life with your wife is not bad, obviously. Neither are the other things. Enjoy your marriage for those who are able to. Because marriage, the way it was intended, is a gift from God. Remember that Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, that it is demonic teaching to say that marriage should not be partaken in. And then find fulfillment in your work. Verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. So work with all your might. Whatever is lawful and legitimate, these are things that God has approved of. So don't be afraid to engage in them and find enjoyment and fulfillment in them. But I want you to notice that Solomon does not let us forget that this life is vain. Enjoy life with your wife all the days of your vain life. In verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do for work, do it with all your might. Invest in it. Treat it seriously. Why? Because there's no work where you're going. You're going to Sheol, the underworld. You're going to die. There's no work there, so enjoy it while it lasts. You kind of see what he's doing. These things are good gifts of God. They are to be enjoyed. They are to be engaged in. But you're living in death's shadow. And there's that tension there. Okay, enjoy life to the fullest. That's great and, and good. I'm glad for these good gifts of God. 
But there's an elephant in the room that remains. What about death that's coming for me? Yes, I can enjoy this life, but it doesn't address the looming question of death. Enjoyment is a temporary band-aid that doesn't heal the real problem. And besides, how you, can you tell me to celebrate, have joy, be merry when death is coming for me? Shouldn't I be mourning this? There must be a missing piece that Solomon leaves out. Well, as is the purpose of Ecclesiastes, Solomon is leaving out a piece. He is leaving us hanging and longing for the answer. And thankfully, the book of Ecclesiastes is not the only book that God gave us in the Bible. He gave us this book to highlight our great need for redemption, which the rest of the Bible addresses. The answer is found in redemption in Christ. In God's infinite love and mercy, God willingly sent His Son to the sin-cursed world to bear our curse. He lived in the shadow of death, knowing He came to die. He came for the purpose of dying, and not only physically dying, but dying eternally in the sense of bearing hell on the cross for every sin of every one He represented. And he did this for us, knowing that our hearts are filled with evil and madness. He knew that. It wasn't, as long as you change your heart, as long as you get your act together, or promise to get your act together, then I will die for you. But knowing our hearts are filled with evil and madness, it was for that purpose that he came to die for us. Because otherwise we would have to die for that sin. And he tasted death for us, so that he would deliver us from the one who had the power of death, that is the devil. The devil has power of death in that he uses it to keep us in fear. He uses us, he uses it to keep us enslaved to a guilty conscience and dead works. Remember your guilt. God's angry at you. You think that he'll love you and accept you like that? Oh, you better shape up and you better do better. Because judgment's coming. Get to work. This is what leads to lifelong slavery from fear of death, as Hebrews 2 says. It's a common experience to fear death. People are desperately trying to suppress it. And just because you're a believer doesn't mean that you're free from the fear of death. While we believe, we can always say, Lord, help my unbelief. Our faith is not perfect. We are weaker than we know. And we may feel really strong until we encounter death, until we get a close encounter with death, and we realize just how afraid we are of it. That whole time that fear was there, we just didn't have to deal with it. And you may even feel guilty if you've been through that. How can I fear death if I'm a believer? And you may say, I really need to work hard at not fearing death. But thankfully, not, that's not even the answer. Because it's not the strength of your faith, but it's the strength of your Savior. You can have the faith as small as a mustard seed. Your faith is this big and you have all this fear of death. But you will have the same refuge as the strongest saint who has the strongest faith. 
It's not your faith, but the one whom your faith is in that saves you to the uttermost. Regardless of how strong your faith is, you are saved because he tasted death for you so that you would never have to face it. In fact, death is now your servant. Death brings you into the presence of God. This is the kindness of our Savior who loves us and who gave himself up for us, that when we die, we will be with him forever. And so only believers can eat bread and drink wine with gladness of heart because they have partaken in the true bread of heaven and the blood symbolized by the Lord's table. Only believers are covered in the whitest robes because their robes have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Only believers can enjoy an eternal marriage as the bride of Christ. And only believers can say, truly, whatever you do, work mightily unto the Lord. Death indeed is coming for us at any moment. But it can no longer harm us in any way. Rather, God has made it our servant to bring us into the fullness of life. And so... Only those in Christ can live in death's shadow, singing a song of mockery to it. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? We do not need to fear living in death's shadow. We do not need to fear death because we have the shelter of Christ who died for us that we may forever live. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we... This is not something we really talk about a lot. We often don't talk about our fears and struggles. Uh, we hide them. We keep them to ourselves. And we bear the guilt for them alone. But you know them all, and you deal with, uh, with them in a way that's kind and compassionate and loving. You remind us that indeed death is coming. We can't escape it. But death's sting is gone because of Christ, because he has taken that penalty for us, bore our sins in full, has faced that judgment for us, satisfied your justice, and now on the day that we die, we are gladly welcomed into your presence where there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore, not because of any works that we have done, but because you love us freely by your grace. We are so grateful for this. We're grateful for the gospel. We're grateful for your love. And we do believe this, Father, but we pray that you would help our unbelief. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com.